Okay, well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Holly Keat. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician from the University of Texas in San Antonio and a member of the CHEST COVID Task Force. And this afternoon, we have an excellent um, hour planned for you of a discussion of how do I know it's COVID-19, a discussion about the available testing strategies and future directions. And we have three excellent speakers who are joining us, Dr. Kelly Cockett, Dr. Charles De La Cruz, and Dr. Ann Wiley. And they'll spend the next hour really providing us with an update on testing for COVID-19, as well as answering the questions that you submitted beforehand and that you're welcome to submit during the presentation. Um, but before I introduce them, let's get a few housekeeping items out of the way. So first of all, you'll use the chat feature below to submit any questions and answers, um, and we will discuss them as they come up. And as well, at the end of the talk, we'll have a few minutes to answer additional questions that we don't have time to get to. Um, and just so that you know, the webinar is being recorded and the recording will be available for your use next week if you have to hop off for any reason. Um, but now let's get to the good stuff. So let me first introduce our panelists and then we'll start our discussion. So first of all, from the University of Nebraska Medical Center, we have Dr. Kelly Cockett. Dr. Cockett is an assistant professor of medicine at UNMC. And she serves in the pulmonary and critical care division there and is the director for infection control at UNMC. She earned her medical degree from the University of Minnesota and completed training in internal medicine at the University of Minnesota before going on to fellowship in critical care and infectious diseases at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Her interests are in critical care infections and the prevention of healthcare associated infections. Um, and she will be discussing with us an overview of testing. Um, and then next we'll have Dr. Ann Wiley from Yale University who received her undergraduate degree and master's in biomedical science at the University of Auckland before completing her PhD in medical microbiology from Utrecht University. Her research interests are in pulmonary infections, including pneumococcal infections, as well as the microbiome. And she was the lead investigator in the development of the recently FDA approved saliva test for COVID-19 and will lead us in a discussion of that subject. And then finally, we have Dr. Charles De La Cruz, also from Yale University. Um, Dr. De La Cruz completed his research training through an MD-PhD program in the area of immunology and virology from the University of Toronto in Yale, and is currently an associate professor at Yale University, where he specializes in pulmonary and critical care medicine. He's also the founding director of the Center for Pulmonary Infection Research and Treatment, and has interest in understanding the role of respiratory infection in the pathogenesis of acute and chronic lung diseases. So welcome to each of you. Um, I'd like to start things off with a summary of the current research with regards to testing. So Dr. Cockett, can you tell us a little bit about where the research is right now and what are the current strategies that are available for testing? Sure, I'm happy to and thanks so much for everybody tuning in. And I'm going to launch in a little bit and just talk about four aspects of testing. One is our PCR testing that was really the gold standard that rolled out and that we have been working with for the longest period of time for this particular infection. And I'm gonna to touch on our antigen testing that is based on the NP swab and let Dr. Wiley talk more specifically about the saliva test. And then I will touch on serology and finally, just briefly on the multiplex testing related to COVID and influenza. So the gold standard really has been the PCR um, pulmonary chain reaction testing based on an NP swab or lower respiratory tract specimen such as tracheal aspirate or sputum to detect SARS-CoV-2. And it has a very high sensitivity and specificity and is detecting RNA. So it can detect virus alive or dead in high volume or very low volume based on the thresholds of the given test in use. Now, it's difficult to give specific data as an overarching view of 
at what threshold a given PCR turns positive because there are so many different ones currently in use on the market and different tests that are actually developed also by research labs and different medical institutions. But in general, think of these right now, at least, as your gold standard for how to diagnose COVID-19. There are some benefits to this test being that it has that high sensitivity and specificity, but it is more expensive. And the turnaround time has been a huge issue, which I think is what we're going to talk a little bit more about as we go through this next hour. There have been some rapid PCRs that have come out and they do seem to have a little degradation in sensitivity and specificity. So not quite as good, but still very good and approaching the level of what we've considered to be these more standard approved um, PCRs. The other thing that has come out related to these PCRs that is in the literature and something to be aware of is the idea of pooled testing with the PCRs. What this means is to amplify the number of tests we can do, they batch a bunch of PCRs and put them all through at once. And if any one of them is positive, the whole batch flakes positive. And then you have to go through and retest each individual one to locate the ones that are positive. There's advantages in a low prevalence area among asymptomatic patients potentially for pooled testing, but it definitely has some limitations, again, based on turnaround time and how you implement that kind of testing with the PCRs. So it's important to understand the nuances of that when we talk about how the tests are done. The other thing we've learned is that sample quality is critical. So if you don't get your NP swab done appropriately and get a good sample, just like if you had a sputum sample that had a ton of epithelial cells and we were trying to culture it, it's just not going to be as reliable as we may want it to be. So also something to consider when we hear more and more about home-based testing, especially if there's discussions about home-based swabs. So again, Sample is critical, but it is the gold standard currently for diagnosis of SARS, um, for COVID-19 and detection of SARS-CoV-2. This is different from the antigen testing. So the PCR detects the RNA. The antigen testing detects viral proteins. And that test is very accurate when positive. But there is a higher risk of false negative results and it's a little more difficult as you get farther into symptomatology to detect. So you really have to have timing being appropriate to use the antigen tests and avoid that risk of those false negative results. So best when used early when the viral load is still really high. Now, that may have some counter payoffs for asymptomatic patients where they may be coming in, say, for a surgical procedure that's aerosol generating, and we want to try to screen or test before a procedure. But this, again, is really heavily predicated on what your prevalence in your community is and what your pretest probability of a positive test in any given patient would be at that time. In patients who are symptomatic, it is still generally thought that the PCR test is probably the optimal test in the fact that it is a one and done test. If you have a patient who's symptomatic 
and you do an antigen test. And maybe it's outside of that early window, it's day eight or nine, and it comes back negative. You may still end up having to get the PCR test and delay your time to diagnosis. If it comes back positive and they're symptomatic, you may not need that test. And this is very akin to what we did with rapid influenza tests and PCR confirmation tests in the past. So similar concept with that, specificity and sensitivity comments. The sensitivity, as I mentioned, is not as good. In general, compared to the PCRs, it seems to be around 84 to 97% sensitivity. Specificity, again, very good. If it's positive, you believe you do have a diagnosis of COVID-19. Another benefit of this test is that, in general, this is financially cheaper and can be done in a faster arena. From a serology standpoint, there are limitations to this too. Early on, we saw early tests that really didn't have good accuracy, and we had some recalls even on the use of some of these tests. Just like any of our other serologic testing protocols that we have for other infections, this is not something that you can use early to diagnose a COVID-19 infection. It is recommended actually to wait for 14 days or so after symptom onset to increase the likelihood that you would actually detect antibodies in a given patient. Now we also know that a lot of patients will develop antibodies, but not everybody does, which raises a lot of confusion regarding the idea of if we have false negatives, was the timing of the test inappropriate, is the test faulty? But then also we know that we don't have a ton of good data in the long-term setting on how durable these antibodies are. We know that they are waning over time. And again, we see varied results in different populations. So detection of an antibody can say, yes, you've been exposed to COVID-19, but it doesn't necessarily guarantee long-term immunity. And it doesn't help you to diagnose an active infection that's transmissible to others. And then finally, to touch on what everybody's talking about these days, what are we doing as flu season rolls in? So it can be incredibly difficult to tell the difference between someone coming in with influenza and COVID-19. And in the inpatient setting, it's going to be very critical to understand the difference because right now our treatment strategies are not going to be the same. And so with that in mind, there are many different protocols that different institutions and organizations are putting into process, but a lot of them are looking at using multiplex PCR testing. So either a rapid pathogen panel that now has SARS-CoV-2 and influenza on it, or some tests that are in the pipeline to come out that just have SARS-CoV-2 and influenza detection so that you could do a single swab but detect both simultaneously. The barrier to this is probably going to be cost. And in the outpatient setting, that could be incredibly costly if you would not necessarily provide treatment for either infection to a given patient. This will also be further confounded, of course, by the risk of co-infections and other respiratory viruses that we will see start circulating throughout the season, potentially. And I'm gonna go with that as a short synopsis of kind of the state of where we are right now based on those categories of testing and let our other panelists kind of weigh in on their thoughts of this.
So Kelly, um, what uh, in your institution um, makes decisions uh, in terms of what platforms to use? Uh, I know different hospitals, different um, medical settings um, have their own viral testing versus a commercial one. Is that process um, um, the same in different institutions and stuff like that or something to think about? I think it varies markedly. So there are um, different labs. So actually here we had one of the first homegrown PCRs for SARS-CoV-2 because we had some of the first patients in the, well, we actually had the first patients in the country that came from the Diamond Princess here. And so we had a test here that was validated against active patients before we even were utilizing the CDC-based tests in our public health labs. That is not the same, right, as many other institutions, especially institutions that are in critical access areas or in non-academic settings where they don't have access to that kind of a research lab and are sending their tests somewhere else to a commercial lab or to a reference lab elsewhere. And so each institution is going to have different platforms at play and different turnaround times and potentially some different sensitivity and specificity of the different tests that they have. And so it's not easy to generalize all of the statements, but I do think you wanna know what kind of tests you're sending away for and your risk of false positives or false negatives based on the general test type. At our institution, our decisions on what tests we bring in are multidisciplinary. We are very actively involved with our microbiology lab, our COVID ID physicians, our um, infection control team, and frankly, our stewardship team who's been very involved with many other multiplex tests in the past. And so it is a multidisciplinary evaluation and discussion of how to implement what. And to further answer your question, we have multiple platforms actually available at this point because we are also a reference lab. So just for throughput, we need to have multiple platforms. Yeah, in our institution, um, we have our own sort of viral panel testing. Um, and I think SARS-CoV-2 was additionally added to that. Um, and in addition, I think depending on um, the urgency of the result that's needed, um, there's a different platforms that are being used. Some, some give you a positive negative results uh, without the cycle threshold, for example. Um, others um, have the specific cycle threshold if, if needed, uh, for example. And some takes longer than others, as you, can, as you know. Absolutely. We, we have platforms that report positive, negative, and one that can actually have an indeterminate result that we've provided test interpretation guidance for. And we do have kind of our routine testing that returns back in under 24 hours and a rapid test for those patients where they may need a significant surgical procedure, but we need to know sooner than later for um, isolation in the hospital or appropriate PPE use, especially in our operating rooms. Just a question on the um, multiflex going forward as well, because of course, especially going into the influenza season, that's been a very um, important thing to be considering. But together with the influenza and SARS-CoV-2, do you think that we should also be looking to include any other very particular ones as well in that development that would be useful for either like diagnostics or screening? So I think that's a really important question. And if you think about the larger multiplex panels on the market, and there's a variety of them, my primary concern are the ones that I would treat. I mean, right, so if it's supportive care, I can do that no matter what the syndrome is, but I wanna rule out the ones that I would otherwise treat in. So for me, I 
depending, it also may depend on the patient population, right? But RSV is another one that may prompt treatment and I think still requires significant consideration when we go through these testing protocols. Thank you, Dr. Cockett, for that excellent overview. Um, there are several questions in the chat, but I think we'll come back to them so that we can make sure that um, Dr. De La Cruz and Dr. Wiley have time also to speak. So Dr. Wiley, shifting gears a little bit, can you tell us about the saliva testing that was recently approved that you worked on developing? Yeah, sure. So um, so where we are with saliva testing has really come out of an incredible collaboration across Yale, across the School of Medicine, Public Health, Yale New Haven Hospital. Um, so originally we were building this biobank of samples when sort of the pandemic really hit New Haven. And our idea was to originally just be able to have a variety of samples that, you know, researchers could go back into to try and understand SARS-CoV-2, but also COVID-19 disease progression. And as part of this biorepository, you know, we're getting a whole range of samples, saliva included. And as they were entering the biorepository, regardless of the sample type, we were testing them all for SARS-CoV-2 detection. And, you know, quite early on, I think like pretty much everywhere else, we experienced firsthand the supply chain issues. You know, we saw the shortages of the nasopharyngeal swabs, um, but also knew the risk that there was to the healthcare workers in taking those swabs. And of course, the hesitancy of people also receiving those swabs. And, you know, especially coming from a research lab, it was very important to us that we would not detract from the clinical supply chain. So even the early assays that we established in our own lab, you know, um, we're doing RNA extraction. So we were using, as Kelly introduced, we're doing RNA extraction with RT-qPCR. We were, we started off with the Thermo Fisher MagMax viral pathogen kit, which was not part of the clinical chain at first. It soon became one of them. And we were using the CDC's primers for N1, N2, and RP, but we were ordering them separately from IDT. And, you know, we validated our in-house assay uh, alongside the Yale, um, the clinical virology lab, just to make sure our research assay was as robust as the clinical virology um, assay that they were having. So we were receiving these samples, we knew the supply chain issues, we did not want to detract from the clinical diagnostic lab and, you know, I think we also maybe missed out on some research opportunities surrounding the shortages of these swabs and again the healthcare workers not wanting to go in for the second swab, which was completely understandable by us, you know, if they had to take a clinical swab for diagnostics and then a research, you know, for us to study. And so with all of those things combined, as we started to see the results rolling in of SARS-CoV-2 detection in these sample types, the saliva just started gaining our interest because we started to see that in a number of instances, it was um, performing as well as or even better than the results that we we're getting from nasopharyngeal swabs. And as we were sort of watching the results coming in, you know, we knew that we were going to have to have an increase in testing um, going forward, knowing the aversion to nasopharyngeal swabs if we wanted to have frequent repeat testing for screening. So we really, you know, saliva really caught our eye and what we could do potentially with that. Um, I think as Kelly also mentioned, you know, that the RNA test, it can be expensive. You know, the RNA extraction step is probably the most expensive step of that whole thing. So, you know, we had seen some groups um, doing some work with the nasal swabs and the viral transport media and testing that almost directly into PCR. So we decided, let's see if we can do the same with saliva. And we had kind of promising results the first time we tried that. So we decided to pursue that. And indeed, knowing that RT-PCR was the gold standard that there was, that that was the most sensitive test that we had there, we developed saliva direct alongside the whole RNA extraction RT-qPCR step to make sure that saliva direct was going to be as sensitive as possible 
as compared to that gold standard test while removing the most expensive step of that, the RNA extraction. So saving a lot of money, but also hopefully to improve um, sample throughput and um, turnaround time. So now what we can do is that we can just collect saliva um, in a very standard laboratory plastic tube. I mean, in the hospital, we've been using urine cups for our asymptomatic healthcare workers. We've been using just little 5 ml um, falcon tubes. You know, we don't need these expensive saliva collection devices, which are also out there. You know, some of those can be from you know, $7.50, $15, up to $30 per tube. Our simple laboratory plastic tubes, they can be, you know, a matter of cents, which really opens up the accessibility to testing. And then the fact that, you know, individuals can effectively self-collect or, you know, if it's under the observation of a trained individual, you know, there still removes that um, patient um, healthcare worker contact that's usually required through the swabs. So we are collecting these very easy to collect simple saliva samples. Um, I think actually again, what Kelly touched on is sample quality matters. Um, you know, we, especially developing this test originally on COVID-19 inpatients, it became clear to us, you know, what's really the difference between true normal saliva, you know, just that saliva that pools in your mouth versus something that may be a bit more um, sputum a bit more mucus in it. And we even found that um, sputum could interfere with our SARS-CoV-2 detection. So it really highlighted to us that um, sample quality is important. Um, we do need just good, normal, true saliva. And that's something that we very much stress in our um, collection efforts. So we receive these samples and do a very basic workup with just, we add um, an enzyme called Proteinase K vortex it really well and that just helps to break down a lot of the proteins that are in the sample itself helps to start breaking down the virus we do a very simple heat and activation step 95 degrees celsius for five minutes and then we can put that onto the rt qpcr we've actually multiplexed um, the uh, qpcr assay we were doing it all in single plex previously for n1 n2 and rp which of course took a lot more time with more reagents effort Having the multiplex, we do now just use N1. Um, we find that N1 has been a lot more reliable in our detection of SARS-CoV-2. Um, it performs very well. You know, it's a widespread primer probe um, that's being used throughout the country for tests. So we know it's highly specific for SARS-CoV-2. And we have RP in there, again, coming back to sample quality. The RP is the measure of the human RNAs P. It's like an internal quality control to tell you that your sample was of good enough quality, that there was nothing inhibitory in your sample, that you know, if you're getting a negative detection for virus, um, but a positive human RNAsP, it means that you can trust that your negative is not due to any inhibition that's gone on within the um, sample itself. Um, so this has meant that we can save about 80 to 90% on um, the overall test price. Um, and what we've done is at each, each step of the process, we've validated different reagents and different PCR thermocyclers with the idea that, um, you know, uh, I guess the main thing is that what this is that we've developed, sorry, I should have really said this first, is that we've developed the protocol for it. We're not packaging a test up. We're not selling anything. We're not distributing anything. We've made a protocol available for high complexity clear labs to establish in their own labs. We're having them go to the suppliers themselves and order their own reagents, which we've validated from a range of suppliers to help keep um, 
you know, how, how, maybe help circumvent any supply chain issues and keep that, those prices down through competition, as well as um, validating a range of PCR thermocyclers with the idea that hopefully labs already have one of these instruments available so that, you know, labs aren't having to go out and buy something new or order something, spend more money to get up and running. Um, so, yeah, we just hope that by getting this out there, making it very easily accessible, we can hopefully get a lot more labs to increase their testing capacity, especially locally. Um, you know, we've already had a lot of universities, school groups, um, just local community groups reaching out to us desperate to find testing options. So, you know, if we can get local labs set up, um, this is where we hopefully also can increase the turnaround time. If, you know, you can have a sample delivered to a local lab rather than having to send it off to one of the big, you know, reference labs around the country. Um, and also just be increasing the testing capacity by this very simple method to set up. So um, I think that's, you know, where we are with Saliva Direct. Um, uh, it's, yeah, happy to discuss it further, answer questions on it. Um, yeah. So, Anne, that's really interesting with saliva. Um, I know, um, you know, it's, it's less sort of invasive, it's more comfortable than NP swabs. Do you envision um, the future of testing reliant on saliva? I think it would definitely help. You know, we're not looking for like saliva direct to be the be all and end all of testing throughout America. I think it's, I think what's really important is that we have options. I mean, I think if every single college and university around sort of opened up with swab-based testing, we might fall into the same supply chain issues again. And, and also, we, I keep hearing so many people reach out to us that not even just, you know, a son or a daughter is scared of a swab test, but whole communities out there um, are hesitant towards swab testing. So at least if we've got another option out there that is easy to adapt, take on, um, and to develop further, I think, as well. So, you know, again, we know that Saliva Direct currently still relies on a lab and PCR testing, but if we can sort of adapt that to one of the other methods to, you know, maybe a, a LAMP methodology or something um, maybe more CRISPR-based or move into a point-of-care setting, um, that would have obviously be very beneficial. And we're also um, considering using our multiplex um, platform to also expand for the um, uh, influenza testing. And also interesting that you mentioned RSV, because for me, I hadn't actually considered RSV clinically at all, but I know it's a very interesting research. Uh, Research-wise, it's a very interesting virus to study, and, you know, the fact that we're doing frequent repeat testing, I think even having these multiplex platforms and screening strategies where, you know, I think you mentioned that maybe multiplexing could be quite expensive for us to add a additional virus target or two into our saliva direct assay. These tests are still only between, for the reagents, maybe between $1 and $4 per test, maybe $12 to $15 overall, but maybe a great way for us to also be able to have more uh, research data on how these viruses transmit or coexist in so many different populations around the country as well. One of my other questions about the saliva testing, um, and I don't think you mentioned this, and if you did, I apologize for missing it, but do you have any data on duration of a detectability based on the level of illness? Like as you get farther into symptomatology after say, you know, day seven or day 10, do, we know that some of our NP swabs tend to lose detection, but the lower tract specimens are better. Do you know when you start to see the fade out there or have you not had that? No, so we, so that's what we did with the um, impact, the Yale Impact Fire Repository as well as we were receiving temporal samples. Um, what we did see is that up until about 10 days post symptom onset, 
uh, saliva was actually better for detection. Um, past that time, you do see more discordance between sort of like, you know, the paired samples for um, uh, saliva and nasopharyngeal swabs. However, still having, um, you know, the fact that we do still get sensitive detection in saliva samples, so even by the RNA extraction method, of course, is that um, I think also what you mentioned is that we do still detect RNA. So you do still detect the RNA shedding for a long time. You can have that, you know, we've detected um, individuals six weeks out, sort of eight weeks out, still low levels of virus RNA in their saliva sample. And I had a question about saliva. Is there anything nuanced to be considered in terms of um, when the saliva is best sampled uh, for um, a reliable result? So I had never come across uh, first morning saliva until working with more of the clinical saliva samples. I've always sort of been more on the research base, sort of sampling healthy individuals. Um, so the whole first morning saliva was very new to me and it actually it kind of made sense, you know, everything sort of collecting during the night, this is how I interpreted it in my head, you know, everything collecting during the night, everything there. Um, but there is a really nice research paper out that has sampled individuals over the course of the day. And I think at all these time points up until before lunch had better RNA detection and then sort of slightly less detection um, sort of in the evening kind of thing. But I think the thing is, is that, you know, it was slightly better detection but unless someone's of very, very low viral load, which is, you know, a question is how clinically relevant is that anyway? Or, you know, if this person's going to get repeat testing, you know, and potentially pick them up the following time. Um, I think the time of day is going to be more, yeah, that had to be such low viral load, I think, to really make a difference between positive and negative. And I think in a lot of the situations now, you know, we're looking at more screening tests where you will have repeat testing and hopefully catch them if they do increase in viral load. Well, thank you very much for that excellent overview. Uh, it's very exciting, which you guys are working on. Um, so let's just finally shift to Dr. De La Cruz to talk about what things are coming down the pipeline. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Holly and uh, Chess, for inviting us to be part of this panel to discuss about um, COVID testing. As you heard, um, there's a lot of different ideas and different platforms are now being used um, for testing. Um, and with this pandemic, uh, there's a lot of innovation that comes with it. Um, and so two of the major areas of innovation are focused on sort of uh, point of care portable testing. And then the other major one is sort of large throughput testing, sort of more um, ro robotics and um, high uh, throughput um, sort of viral testing. Uh, with the portable point of care testing, you heard some of them already. Um, and with RT-PCR, um, typically in the, in the lab setting, it's a big machine, um, requires time. Um, and the whole, the whole point of it is to have amplification uh, at different temperatures and many cycles. And that, that's why you have the cycle threshold that allowed for detection of viral testing. The lower the cycle threshold, the more virus there is because it doesn't take as much cycles to get to this um, to a level to show uh, positivity. And so a lot of efforts are now made so that you can do these RT-PCR uh, in a portable setting outside the laboratory. And so some of the ideas have been used for uh, include sort of isothermal sort of amplification, meaning using one temperature without having to use sophisticated uh, machine to do the amplification steps. Um, and so people are coming up with devices that are using portable RT-PCR 
and some of them are disposable and, and within, you know, 15 minutes of testing. Obviously, this, these needs validation and making sure that uh, validated with sort of the more conventional lab testing. Uh, something you heard earlier, um, Dr. Wiley mentioned uh, something called LAMP. Um, these are sort of a sort of a loop mediated sort of isothermal amplification uh, using also the same kind of enzymes um, that reacts at a certain temperature without having to use um, sort of uh, different high and low temperatures for the amplification tap. Uh, these are actually pretty cool. These are um, primers that are focused specific to the virus in different parts. Some of them makes a loop out of it. Um, the whole point of this high temperature that the, the PCR machines has to achieve is so that these DNA um, doesn't um, anneal and it can sort of uh, separate and then you can make amplifications from it. Uh, and so these loops and these specific polymerases allows these, um, um, these sequences um, um, to separate by itself and then you have the amplification using the same temperature. And what they've done is they actually combined them with some colometric assays where you could do this at the same temperature, it could be portable, uh, and then it changes colors once it's reached a threshold of levels of positivity. And you can do these tests in a very small amount of time, uh, and then it could be portable. Uh, I've seen this in uh, some publications that use this LAMP technology to detect small amounts of viral RNA. Um, and it also sort of combines it with non-specialized equipment. Um, I've seen ones where they actually made sort of a handy a handheld centrifuge with spins, uh, and then you can spin your sample, and then you can have this reaction, and then based on the pH uh, and the colometric assay, it'll tell you you have positive or not. Um, so one of this publication uh, claims that you can make this fairly cheap, uh, $5 per unit for the centrifuge, uh, which could be repeated for many different patients. And then each of these tests are probably a dollar uh, to do. And so if in sort of low resource areas without these technologies, these could be used for low cost electricity free centrifuges uh, using the LAMP technology to detect uh, whether someone's positive or not. And so I think this kind of exciting kind of innovative kind of approaches. Um, other folks have used sort of microfluidic chambers um, to have you drop the samples and then with these microfluidic chambers, you have different reactions and then you get results at the end. Um, and some of these platforms are like the lateral flow assay that you heard about from Dr. Calcutt, uh, which is the antigen testing. And essentially these are like literally the pregnancy test versions of COVID-19. And so they detect, for example, the antibodies uh, to the virus antigen and proteins, and then you get the results in a very short time. Um, other people, as you've heard, are trying to combine them with influenza uh, so that, uh, especially in this fall season and winter season, it'd be nice to have one assay where you can say you have COVID or not or flu or not in this one test. Um, and so I think these are really exciting uh, advances. I know the National Institute of Health have uh, started uh, months ago uh, a program called the Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostic uh, Initiatives. And these are requesting different investigators and companies and academics uh, to submit ideas uh, to, uh, for the purpose of this rapid uh, um, development of this, this testing for COVID-19. And some of these are uh, related to what I've mentioned. Uh, in terms of high throughput, um, 
you know, I think um, because of in, um, a lot of screening testing, you can imagine the yield of a positivity are low. So people are trying to uh, optimize the sample collection, optimize the, the positivity detec detection. Some are using, for example, these nano trap um, magnetic system to trap the virus, for example, in this body fluids, um, be it saliva or NP swab solutions. Uh, and then eliminating um, sort of the RNA extraction step, uh, as you heard from Dr. Wiley, which is expensive and time consuming. And so they go directly to PCRing straight from the virus, concentrating the samples, and then improving sort of the sensitivity and the performance of the test. And so um, others uh, include uh, sort of more um, um, thorough analysis of the samples. Some people are actually doing uh, actual sequencing of the samples uh, to sequence what's, whatever is in the uh, samples, uh, looking for non-human samples, as in this case, specifically viruses. I think this approach probably is probably more costly. Uh, you would need an algorithm to detect human sequences from non-human sequences, and then you would have to be able to identify uh, what level of detection um, does it tell you whether you have the virus or not. And so I think this is sort of work in progress. Um, something that you haven't heard so far uh, is something uh, related to volatile organic compounds. Um, these are emitted in the breaths uh, of individuals. And so I think the same idea uh, people are, um, for people are using breathalyzer to detect alcohol in their breath. Um, there are a lot of work um, focusing on identifying specific signature emitted from somebody who's uh, infected with COVID-19 and identifying these organic compounds in breath, for example. And you can imagine a scenario if this works, um, you know, you can go to your airport, you get a breathalyzer test, and then you can see whether or not you're COVID positive or not. Uh, again, these are like active areas of research that are currently underway. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, all these, I think ultimately would allow us to get some of these um, um, uh, in the right setting or the specific setting, what the right test for it and what the purpose is, right? So, um, you know, if someone who's admitted to the hospital, I think one of the first things we want to know is does the patient disease process is related to COVID or something other than COVID. And so I think that based on the, the need of um, in the clinical scenario or the settings, uh, the testings have to match that uh, based on the timing, the, the sensitivity, uh, and as well as the cost. Um, so I think um, exciting future ahead, I think. Um, Great. Well, thank you, Dr. La Cruz. Um, and now let's turn to just a few of the questions that we've received prior to the session, as well as some questions have been submitted during the session. Um, so there have been several questions about timing of testing with regards to people, um, you know, clearing their infection. And then there've been various recommendations about retesting and some employers are even requiring retesting before people go back to the workforce. Um, even people who are in the hospital for, you know, we see these people in the ICU for sometimes weeks to even months. And can we change their infection control precautions based on repeat testing, those kind of things. Um, so maybe I can turn this to Dr. Cockett. Can you talk a little bit about those different like phases of testing and recommended strategies for that? Sure, sorry. So um, one, this is a very intricate area of discussion regarding timing of testing because there's a lot of caveats into that. So there's timing of testing as it relates to someone who is asymptomatic where you don't know where in that theoretical disease course they are. 
And then there's timing related to someone who is symptomatic based on when they think their symptoms started. So we talked a little bit about PCR testing and antigen testing. And Dr. Wiley mentioned, you know, her saliva testing having similar um, sensitivity and specificity to these PCR level tests. So, you know, those first 10 days specifically seem to be where we have the highest yield for detection, at least for the majority of tests, if you take any test on the market, that seems to be your highest likelihood of obtaining um, a positive test. Now there's some lack of knowledge still, I think in my mind, to the people who are pre-symptomatic, meaning you've had an exposure and at what point do you transition from your exposure to infection and then infection to symptoms? Because again, that incubation period is quite long. And in the pre-symptomatic phase, could we theoretically test you and be too early and not detect it? Possibly, but it is these tests, especially, you know, our RNA-based testing is just so sensitive that we think we capture most of them. When you talk about the flip side, should I test people to return to work or to leave isolation? Um, I can tell you that in general, we have a hospital policy through infection control where we release our patients with very few exceptions on day 21 without getting repeat PCR testing. And that is based on a fair amount of data, none of it perfect, but a fair amount of early data that shows that although you may have prolonged viral shedding, you don't have prolonged transmissibility for a lot of these patients, especially after day 10 or so. Now, there are some exceptions amongst the very critically ill or the very immunocompromised. If someone has not had profound clinical improvement in a hospital setting, that is where we will retest them as they approach day 21, and we will look at that cycle threshold and look at the amount of recovery they've had and then make the best decisions we can based on the combination of those two if we feel that it is safe to move them out of our isolation strategies. On the outpatient side, I don't know if you have waited for your standard isolation period and you have clinically recovered per the guidance that's out there, that retesting to allow re-entry makes a ton of sense to me, again, unless you're highly immunocompromised. Then maybe there's a little better argument there possibly. Um, but also in an era where a lot of people are wearing masks when they go back, um, the risk to others, even if you have a few days where you may have some um, viral shedding with a plausible risk of transmissibility in that, I don't know, 10 to 20 day period, the risk is probably still quite low if you've had substantial clinical improvement. And so even for our healthcare workers, we bring you back to work after you've recovered clinically without repeat testing in the hospital. But these policies, as you guys on this call are aware, and I'm sure my co-panelists are very well aware, these change from place to place, geographic area to geographic area, based on availability of testing, in some areas based on fear and anxiety related to what people are doing for their work, what is happening with sporting events, what is happening with schools, and what the prevalence in the community really is. And I'll stop there and let my other colleagues speak up. Yeah, I agree totally with Dr. Talcott. I mean, I think um, something to think about, uh, the main testing, as you've heard, is through um, RT-PCR testing. And so we're actually just measuring pieces of the virus, RNA, 
and and sometimes it doesn't correlate 100% with actual live virus that that could transmit to the next person and so the highest chances uh, as you've heard is is within the time of symptoms within the first few weeks uh, of likelihood of transmission and we've had patients who have been positive by PCR um, you know, four weeks into it. And so the question is, are they transmitting the virus to another person? And there's some studies, and although I think they're still being worked on, that a certain cycle threshold level, um, if you have high viral load from the PCR testing, the likelihood of a virus um, growing out of that sample is higher. And, and the lower the, 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 uh, the viral load, um, the, the less likely you're going to pick it up. And that's why you heard about the, some of the institutions having maybe 21 days in the hospital and then you'll be fine because the likelihood of you having something that is infectious that you can pass on, even though you're positive, is less likely. Uh, a good example are, for example, patients who, um, you know, have um, uh, chronic sort of sequelae of these symptoms and they were worried that they still have symptoms even after their initial um, disease, uh, are they still positive or not? And a lot of those patients months afterwards are negative um, based on the routine testing. Uh, and so the likelihood of them transmitting to another person is less. And mostly because these tests are specifically amplifying and so sensitive for the viral RNA. Uh, and so something to bear in mind. I think it's, um, I again also agree with everything that both of you have said, but what, I've, um, what has been really encouraging hearing both panelists also say uh, so far is about the um, interpretation of CT values and that there are a number of us who are actually looking at that and trying to take that into consideration with instead of just having a positive or a negative. And I'm hearing more and more from people about how there are so many labs, she referenced labs, that don't release this data or due to sort of um, FDA regulations can't release that data, but I feel that, you know, we're potentially shifting into a realm where it's going to be actually a lot more useful for us to have that data. So the fact that a lot of us are already thinking about that and considering that, I'm hoping it's a conversation that we can keep carrying forward and hopefully see a change in, you know, more of that viral load or the RNA detection load um, being actually considered and used in sort of interpretation for the risk that these individuals pose to others. The one thing I will add just to echo that point is I know that when we've been looking at our cycle thresholds, we've actually also seen fairly significant variation um, from platform to platform. And so that's going to be an issue that I think is worth noting. If you start asking your lab to give it to you, you have to be very cautious with how you interpret it because if their tests are being done on multiple instruments, the cycle threshold of one on day one may be different than the second one if it's done even at the same time. And so that makes it a little interesting for management and it's something that um, we are struggling with, you know, do you have to have almost some kind of conversion unit to standardize that um, or how do you manage that? And so that is an intriguing problem with the multitude of tests that are coming out. So I also know that the um, FDA has just sent around a lot of sort of standardized um, sort of, um, I guess, standards for a lot of the different EUAs out there to actually test on their platforms to try and get a better handle of how all of our um, tests actually compare. 
And that could be an actually interesting thing going forward is looking at, you know, who's performed what on what and with what instrumentation and if we can sort of get this more in a conversation of sort of uh, clinical management as well. Um, there are several questions about the biofire assays um, and cross-reactivity between other coronaviruses. I wonder if one of you could comment about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, from what I understand, um, some of these platform panels and um, uh, testing, um, the way they identify areas of primers uh, for each of these different viruses, for example, the other coronavirus are quite specific. And the likelihood of them picking up um, sort of by mistake or by chance um, is a lot less. Um, I know the you know, there are four seasonal coronaviruses out there, and um, and 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 they're detected specifically for those um, seasonal coronavirus, and and they they typically know for sure um, that they're different from SARS-CoV-2. So I thought I don't think that'll be an issue uh, uh, specifically. Um, and there's a concern about these mutations. Um, I, th I know SARS-CoV-2 do mutate, but not certainly in the rate. Uh, that we see with other viruses, and I, um, I think they do these sort of quality checks anyways over time to make sure, but I think that's certainly not a current concern. I would agree. I'm not aware of any data to say that we're seeing cross-reactivity between the other seasonal coronaviruses and SARS-CoV-2 at this point in time. Um, the only place where there were, I know there had been some questions I have seen out in the lay press or on um, other discussion boards was regarding whether or not at some point this was detectable but suppressed on prior multiplex platforms, but it was not ever detectable on these other platforms. They needed new targets, which is why new platforms and new tests have come out to specifically add in that because it wasn't cross-reacting and it wasn't being detected or suppressed on the other ones. And I guess maybe just a question for each of you, like looking into the future, what do you think would be the things that we as a pulmonary critical care community should really focus on in terms of testing strategies in our, in our centers to try to really understand the prevalence of the disease in our centers. What are the things that you think would make the biggest impact going forward, I guess, is the question. I think I could start a little bit. I mean, I know um, at Yale, um, there are investigators along with other places who, from a population level, and I think Anne knows this, um, where they, uh, monitor, for example, the sewage system. Um, and so usually that's sort of a first indication uh, that something's going on in a certain population. Um, and um, as a sort of a trigger that there might be a, 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 an increase or maybe a second wave. Uh, and these are definitely sort of pooled sampling and sort of an indicator of, of, of um, increased incidence. And then that might be able to target, for example, certain communities uh, for outreach and, and awareness. Um, and then I think, um, I think that's still a major issue and major areas for intervention, which is sort of public health, um, making sure that, you know, people stay safe and um, uh, having a limited sort of um, uh, circle of uh, uh, interaction of folks and make sure that I think this is not going to go away until I think this fully go away. I think, uh, and, and it's, I think that's really, uh, important um, to be vigilant. Uh, and I think this fall with, with the other viruses coming into play, 
um, I think it's even more important. Um, I think one thing too, from a prevalence standpoint, although it is again, a kind of a biased sample, but when we moved into a realm where we could do universal hospital screening and universal screening, even for outpatient procedures, that gives you a sample of an entire population who don't have symptoms at all. Now, obviously PCR-based testing, as we've talked about, you know, it's time limited, right? So I can't tell you if you had it before, we're not doing serology across the board on all of the, our admissions but we do get an idea at least of a sample of how many surprise positives do we find right and so that has really helped us kind of think about our patients and our hospital policies and expand that out a little more into the community regarding how often do we see positives like this and are we starting to see more tipping positive on our overall test number by percentage on a daily or weekly basis that raises some early flags that we are seeing at least some earlier outbreaks in certain populations. Um, but again, it's biased by our healthcare center, by who has access to care here, and by who is coming in for care, regardless of access capacity. Um, all of the hospitals obviously have different access points and different communities will have different issues with that. Some other things that we did offer um, for our populations to try to help were to do those mobile units out in populations where it was not as easy to come in and swabbing and drive through settings um, for people who needed testing. And that included asymptomatic patients, again, who may need some other um, healthcare capacity testing. And then for a prevalence of healthcare workers, that is where we do have some um, serologic testing routinely being studied to see, at least in our employees, are we seeing conversion and are we seeing um, serology that's positive that may even be community-based transmission as opposed to what we're seeing in our very highly protective healthcare environment at the moment. And I think for me, sort of a little bit more outside of the clinical setting, but I'm just really excited about this potential shift that we're seeing in the way of thinking away from these very, very sensitive diagnostic tests to this realization that we do need these more, that, you know, they can be less sensitive, but idea that these are going to be these other tests that we can use for screening and surveillance or, you know, uh, reconsidering the CT values of some of these more sensitive tests. But the idea that, you know, we have had to shift from this very traditional idea of sensitive diagnostic testing, but what can we do going forward that can get us tests that we can have more frequent testing or cheaper testing out into the community to really like give access to everyone that needs it, but also to help support, you know, kids getting back to school. Um, and so just being very encouraging, especially I think in the last couple of days, there some messages also coming out from the FDA about them being more open and willing to consider tests of lower sensitivity, but with the idea that these are going to be tests that you do more regularly to sort of account for that. So I'm just really, um, you know, excited about the potential, you know, there's already been so much development in the last six months alone. And I already know that there's so many people still working around the clock on COVID diagnostics that I think even the development that we see within the next couple of months will also be um, really encouraging going forward. Sounds like we're going to have to have this discussion again in a couple of months. <laughs> Well, I want to thank each of you for your time this afternoon and for sharing your expertise. Um, this has been a great discussion. And um, unless any of you have any closing thoughts, then I guess we'll wrap it up for this afternoon. And just for the attendees, just to remind you that this recording will be available and emailed to you next week. Um, and thank you all very much for spending this hour with us.